Good morning, Veritas. Good to be with you guys. Uh, This morning, we are going to open Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to get right after it. So um, if you have a Bible, open it there or turn it on to there. Here's the thing. This, as we go through Revelation, uh, this sermon's going to feel a little differently because we're just going to move through the text. And so it's less about uh, bullet points and big ideas and more just like mark up your Bible, write stuff down and, and track with the storyline of Revelation. We start in Revelation 4, which is kind of sets the scene. John comes into the throne room of God, which we'll see uh, but there's no real drama or plot at that point. It's just setting. And then chapter 5, we move into uh, uh, the plot. The drama starts to unfold. So uh, strap it in as we, as we read from Revelation. So we're in chapter 4. We'll just start in verse 1, and we're going to work our way through these two chapters. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The door opens, the door of heaven opens and John sees the throne room of God. Listen to his description of it. Verse three, the one seated there had the appearance of Jasper and cornelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. If any of you guys have seen gemstones like this, jasper, carnelian, they can be orange, red, and they almost just glow. These, like a brownish red mineral is is carnelian. And, And the colors here, the rainbow around the throne that looked like emerald green, beautiful, Colors, dazzling colors is what John is seeing. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. He sees 24 elders. Who are these elders? Uh, Don't you want to be one of these elders? Like, if you could have a wish, like, I'll be one of the 24. I don't know if those are people or if it's like some high order of angels, but there's 24 thrones. And here's what's interesting. Who sits on a throne? Somebody with authority sits on a throne, right? And John is seeing throne upon throne upon throne upon throne surrounding God's throne. What a picture. Authority structure all over over heaven, we see what's the significance of 24? Well, 12, you'll remember, is a significant number. Remember the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the 12 gates in the New Jerusalem with 12 angels at each gate. 12 is significant because it's symbolic of divine government. There's a political authority structure that governs, perfectly governs the affairs of heaven. What a cool picture. Verse 5, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. 
What are the seven spirits of God? I don't know. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's more angels. Verse 6, but something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. He's looking around and he's seeing all these colors. And then he looks down at the floor of the throne room. And it's like crystal. It's, I mean, think about, you know, concrete. A little nicer than this floor. It looks like crystal. And it looks like it's sparkling like a sea of glass. Now, I want to stop here before we continue and give us all a quick lesson on interpreting apocalyptic literature, which is what this is. It's a, it's a genre of literature, and there's a lot of symbolic language. Why? Why use symbolic language? Well, what do humans do? What do we do when we say, I'm at a loss for words? We use a metaphor, word pictures, symbols to say, I mean, it's like a sea of glass, He's, he's trying to describe what he's seeing in symbolic language. We do the same thing when we're overwhelmed and we don't know what words to use. I came across this because I was thinking of what things have humans seen with their eyes that are like beyond description. And I came across one. And we're going to start with a little trivia this morning. You guys ready? So um, this is a little over 60 years ago. Um, was anyone alive a little over 60 years? Maybe you don't want to admit it. Uh, some of you are like, uh, I don't want to admit that. But some of you were alive a little over 60 years ago. And there was one of the few humans was a cameraman that got to see this and listen to his description of this historical event. See if you know what it is. He said, the clouds beneath the aircraft and in the distance were lit up by the powerful flash the sea of light spread under the hatch, and even clouds began to glow and became transparent. At that moment, our aircraft emerged from between two cloud layers, and down below in the gap, a huge bright orange ball was emerging. The ball was powerful and arrogant like Jupiter. Slowly and silently, it crept upwards. Having broken through the thick layer of clouds, it kept growing. It seemed to suck the whole earth into it. The spectacle was fantastic, unreal, supernatural. It's the description on October 30th, 1961. It's the Tsar Bomba in Russian, which means the king of bombs. This thermonuclear hydrogen bomb that Russia tested in a remote part of, of northern Russia off the coast there. 58 megatons of power, 3,000 times the blast uh, in World War II with the atomic bomb. This cameraman is seeing something that is unimaginable. A 6.2 square mile fireball rising over 43 miles into the Earth's atmosphere. The flash of light was visible 620 miles away and about 560 miles away in Norway and Finland. Um, people say that it shattered glass in homes. Here's my point in bringing up this story of what this cameraman saw. 
Number one, just like in Revelation, it's like, he, it's like you're reading Revelation with his description where he says, it seemed like it sucked the whole earth into it. He described it as powerful and arrogant like Jupiter. It was a sea of light. What John is seeing as he steps into the throne room of God is beyond language's ability to describe. And so he invites us in through using this language, symbolic language, and it's meant to stir your imagination. What were the colors that he's seeing? What are the smells and the sounds like loud peals of thunder, crashing, lightning strikes? The second reason I bring this story up is why did the Soviet Union want to test a bomb like this? Because they wanted to flex their power. They wanted the world to know that they were the kings of this earth. And they were showing their military might with this test. Now, here's the thing. When you compare the greatest expression of power and force that humans can come up with, it lasted a few seconds, maybe a few minutes. And it was measurable, megatons, square miles. But the glory of God makes that look like a little firecracker that pops for a second and is gone. God is eternal, limitless, measureless. You can't quantify the glory of God. And John is inviting us in to behold the glory of God. And he continues, look at verse six, halfway through, four living creatures. Now he gets past these these 24 elders on thrones, and he sees these four living creatures. We see this in Ezekiel and Isaiah, the cherubim and seraphim, these, these creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. Again, if you tried to draw this, what would a creature with eyes all around on front and back even look like? What John is saying here is that these creatures symbolize omniscience, limitless intelligence, and vigilance. This, verse 7, it says, the first living creature was like a lion. A lion is the king of all the beasts, right? It's the top of the food chain. It's symbolic of this first creature is like limitless, royal power. The second creature was like an ox. What does an ox symbolize? Strength, endurance. The third living creature had a face like a man. Now, this is not an animal. This is, this is a man. The head symbolizes intelligence, wisdom. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Exodus 19, you can see at the giving of the law that will carry you on, on eagle's wings. It's, it's the protective care of God. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Something with wings is able to get to point A to point B quickly, like a helicopter. Just nothing 
is going to slow it down. It just goes from here to here. But these creatures just have this ability to get from point A to point B just in no time. Speed to execute God's command with their wings. And they were covered with eyes around and inside day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. These magnificent golden crowns that are on the heads of these princes of heaven. When you think about this scene, I don't know who the 24 elders are, but I know what their function is. And there's something about their authority. Think about the authority of a mayor, then the authority of a governor, then the authority of a president, right? We get that as you get to each higher authority, there's like layers of security that you would have to go through. Like you're not just going to roll up at the White House and walk in, right? You're not going to do that. It's not going to go well for you. This scene here is like authority upon authority. And these are like angelic beings that this is, this is a mind-blowing thing. And they have these golden crowns and they throw them down onto that glassy sea. Why? Why would they do this? It tells us, verse 11, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Why do they cast down their golden crowns on the glassy sea? Because whatever authority they have, they know that it was given to them. And he says, by your will, creation exists. I, I was thinking about this and I was like, just put my name in there. By God's will, Mark exists. By God's will, you exist. By God's will, the Milky Way exists. By God's will, the USA exists. By God's will, every star exists. I mean, whatever you can think of that has been created, it exists. Why? Because God wanted it to. And these creatures are in awe of God as the creator. And I was thinking about how we as humans, we don't like to cast our crowns down. We like to make sure they're firmly placed on our head, and we make other people bow down to our crown. Like, we like the authority we have. And we say, little children say things like, who made you the boss of me? Like, kids walk around like they got a big old crown on their head, and they're the king that you're supposed to bow down to, right? And adults are just like bigger versions of that. So what has God given you this morning that you need to cast down before him? Because maybe you've been living like you're the owner of your life. 
Anybody who has ever been in the presence of God, the, the only rational thing to do is to take your crown and throw it down because you're like, you gave that to me. It's kind of ridiculous to strut around in an end zone or the runway of a beauty pageant and tell everyone to give you the glory for your beauty or your physical talent or whatever it is. That's so absurd in the presence of God because every, everyone who's been in the presence of God knows, wow, he's the creator and I exist by him and for him. I think it's so cool. Paul says, I count everything in my life as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, my Lord. That's what these 24 elders are saying. You are glorious. So there's the scene in chapter four. We've set the scene. And now the real drama unfolds. And this is going to begin kind of the storyline of Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. Okay, we don't, we don't use scrolls much. Um, our documents are maybe uh, bound up in a book or uh, something with pages that you can read, but they had, that, they had books back then called Codex, um, but they weren't very good. They weren't as good as the scrolls, which uh, this, this parchment paper or papyrus, and they would have these long, imagine a long, long uh, kind of uh, piece of paper, and they would write on this, and they would write on, usually only write on one side because of the papyrus, it's hard to, it was hard to write on the back, but this document has writing on both sides. Why would you do that? One, maybe you're poor and you don't have much paper, so you want to make use of all the paper. Or two, the second reason they would do it, and that's the case here, is that in the case of a legal document, you don't want the information separated. You would put it, you want it in one place and safe. So you would write on the front and the back. What John is saying is, this is a super important document, and it's rolled up, and what holds the scroll together? Because it wants to kind of unroll. So what do you do? Rubber bands, of course, right? You put a rubber band on it. Well, they didn't have rubber bands back then. So what did they do? They would put a blob of wax on, to, on, on the, uh, the edge to seal it. And what would they do? This, and this one had seven blobs of wax, seven seals. And then you would take a signet ring, instead of signature, you would put a, a signet ring and you would, you would press the wax. And so this scroll has seven seals, seven blobs of wax, and it's sealed. And let's continue here. It says, I also saw, this is so, so we're in verse two. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Okay, let's stop there. This is a super important document that only the owner is able to open. So what is inside this scroll? One commentator describes this as, this scroll, it's like the title deed of, of earth. 
Basically, in this scroll is contained all the purposes of God in salvation and in judgment. So all the questions that you have ever asked, like, why did this happen? God, every time we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that, and we don't really understand it because we're confused. Like, God, I prayed about this, and why did this happen? This scroll has all the answers in it. The divine purposes of God are written in this scroll. So who thinks they have the authority to open this official document and execute the judgment and blessings in this scroll? Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. There's no angel. There's no cherubim or seraphim. There's no elder. There's no spirit. There's no wizard or magician which is referred to, no one even under the earth was able to open this scroll. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. John starts crying because no one can open the scroll. Why is John crying? I think John is crying for the same reason that you cry and that I cry. I want you to think about this setting. Where is John when he's writing Revelation, when he's writing down this vision? He's on the island of Patmos. That's like Alcatraz. And they put him there because he's a Christian. He is suffering for the gospel. Now, I want you to think about the church at this time. You know, were there mega churches all over the ancient Near East where John is in, in Asia Minor? No. Struggling, persecuted churches. And if you're around the last couple weeks, it doesn't seem great because a lot of those churches are dysfunctional. This is a pretty hopeless situation. We got a bunch of struggling churches. They're veering off into false doctrine, they're going into sexual immorality, they're apathetic, don't really care about the kingdom. Jesus is on the outside knocking, asking if he can get in. They're lukewarm. They don't care. God's like, I'm going to spit. It'd be better if you guys didn't even meet. Here, John is now this persecuted, oppressed people. And there's a scroll with all the answers. And God's going to execute judgment. The problem is nobody can open the scroll. And he's crying for the same reason that we cry. Asking questions like, does this have any meaning? Does history have a point to it? Who's going to make sense out of this loss that I just experienced? We cry for grief or pain or loss. And John is in the throne room of God crying. Who will open the seals? Who will guide history 
to any kind of conclusion. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is such a cool moment here between verses 5 and 6 because John is hearing the angel tell him about this conquering, military, roaring lion that is just, he, he's going to take the scroll and open it. And John's like, this is great news. Through his tears, he turns around and he looks to see this lion of Judah that he's hearing about. And what does he see? A lion of Judah, this is all over. Genesis 49, uh, this theme of the lion of Judah, the root of David. Remember, David's throne was like a uh, cut down. It was like a stump in the ground. But Isaiah said, there's going to come a shoot out of this, and he's going to rule on the throne of David forever. That's Jesus. So he's excited as he's crying through his tears, hearing about this lion. He turns and looks, and what does he see? Verse 6. What does he see? Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. This is an amazing moment in heaven. I thought the king was going to be this powerful military ruler, and I turn around, he's like, I see this slaughtered lamb. And the word for lamb is like a baby lamb, a little lamb. But this lamb, look at verse 6. It says he had seven horns. What's a horn symbolic of? Hunters? Any hunters out here? What are you going? Are you going for the ones without horns? You don't like horns, do you? No, you want the ones with horns. What does horns symbolize? Antlers, power, strength, the king. This lamb had seven horns. So seven is complete, it's perfect. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. Again, is this a reference to the Holy Spirit or angels? I don't know. But John, he's seeing that, that this lamb, he sees it all. And with his horns, he's like, he's going to execute his perfect power and his purpose. Verse 7. He went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. Okay, so when you picture harp, don't picture what we have with a harp. It was, uh, that's a beautiful instrument. But I mean, this could be, I don't know, we don't know for sure what the harp was, but it's a, it's a joyful instrument. I mean, if you want to think about an electric guitar or whatever it is, the sound of heaven, the soundtrack changes to this celebration and joy. As Jesus grabs the scroll, he's sovereign over the chaos and the music changes. No more tears. I'm smiling with laughter now at this point. Whoa, this is starting to get good. And the golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All of a sudden now we have the sound of a trumpet and thunder and we're seeing all these colors. And now we get the smells of heaven like this incense rises up. 
What do we do when we want to change an atmosphere? Get the smells going, maybe some, some perfumes or oils or candles, whatever it is. And we fill the place with a sweet smell. And what is the smell? What's producing the smell up in heaven as the incense rises? What is it? It's the prayers of the saints. And sometimes you've thought your prayers were hitting the ceiling. Oh, no. They were hitting these bowls in heaven that rise like incense. Psalm 141, some of you guys have prayed a prayer like this. Oh, Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Have you guys ever prayed that kind of prayer? Like, God, chop, chop, hurry up to help me. Because something's going on in my life and things are not looking good. I need you to come. I need you to help me. And I love that he says, hurry. Hurry, God. Listen to my voice when I call to you. He tells God to listen to his voice. He feels like God's not hearing him. God's taking too long. Hurry up. Listen. May my prayer be set before you as incense. Isn't that so cool? Revelation comes back to that and says, oh, yeah. Every prayer that you prayed is rising up before the throne. The raising of my hands as the evening offering what a cool picture as John is, is seeing, he, he's, he's not hearing the prayers of the saints, he's smelling them. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. Why was Jesus worthy to open up this scroll? What does it say? Why is he worthy to open the scroll? Because he was slain. What do we do when we get authority? We make everyone bow down and do exactly what our selfish desires want them to do. We use them, we abuse them, we do all kinds of terrible things. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's what humans do. But what does Jesus do with all of his authority and power? He uses it to get on his hands and knees and wash some dirty feet right before going to a cross where he will be crucified. And the reason he did it is because these sinful people needed him to do it. He did it because he so loved the world. And these creatures in heaven are just mind blown that he would use his power and authority to become a sacrifice. And that is why he's worthy to just rip open these seals. And this begins the unfolding drama 
of the book of Revelation. As each of these seals are slit open, we're going to see what is in the scroll. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But for now, let's focus along with the angels and the elders. Verse 9. It's because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Don't you just long, and this is, this is something we, we get, right? We long for diversity. We long for unity. We long for a place where people, different colors, different nationalities and ethnic groups and peoples and nations can just like, be together and not fight. Well, what you're longing for is heaven because that's where it's going on. He says, verse 10, you made them, all these nations and peoples, a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down. And worshiped. Think of this scene here. John walks into the presence of God. He sees the throne of God. He sees this scroll, the scroll with God's, the, the explanation of God's kingdom. And no one can open it up, so he starts crying. And what does God do? What does a crying person in heaven need? He takes his head, and it's like, imagine him like putting his hands on his cheeks, and he turns his head to see Jesus, to see the slaughtered lamb. Jesus right now is in heaven with a glorified body. Remember the disciples, they could still see his scars. For all of eternity, we are going to be see, we're going to see Jesus. I think the thing that you need this morning and that I need is the same thing that John needed. Through his tears, he needed to see Jesus. That's what God wants you to see this morning. And when you look at Jesus, you see an all-powerful God. But he doesn't exist like the Tsar Bamba, the king of all bombs, just to make a big explosion and show his power. No, he actually uses his power not to destroy, but to give himself for you. And we're going to close our time in communion. It's no wonder Jesus told us to do communion. Because it's the way of God reminding us, just like John in the throne room in Revelation 5, of the glory 
in the sacrifice of Jesus. So would you pray with me as we close our time together? And I'm just going to invite you to just quiet your heart. The worship team is going to lead us and, and just help us to join the angels, to join the elders, the saints, the glorious creatures of heaven, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. We join them, giving glory to the Lamb. And this communion table, it symbolizes the bread. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. The cup, this juice represents the blood of Christ shed for us. I just invite you to come. Just marvel at Jesus. Come, cast down your crown as you come. Lay down your crown. Maybe you come just saying, God, forgive me of pride. Forgive me of self-sufficiency. Forgive me of rebellion and sin. Just come confessing your sin and just receive the forgiveness, the grace, and marvel at the glory of our Savior. Just when you're ready, come. Let's do this in remembrance.